My name is Fatty's Bank, and I am a storyteller, a student of the paranormal, and a chronicler of the twilight demimond that lies beyond mortal understanding. When you were a child, and things went bump in the night, I hazard to guess that you were far too afraid to look under the bed, through that dark kingdom of broken Lego and bits that you hadn't hoovered. My room was always tidy, and I was the boy that always looked under the bed. I hope you enjoy my stories this evening, but let me be clear. I'm not here for your enjoyment. I'm in a recording studio, an expensive one. These tales are true. Every word, they serve as warnings! This is a warning, I can't just whisper it in the bloody thing. Our story begins upon a dark and storm-swept night here in the city of Liverpool. The heavy rains coating the streets and their furniture with an unsettling gleam, like the grease on old, cold gravy. Through the rains, we see a figure exiting the recess of a nearby building, one gloved hand pulling his top hat down forcefully to shield himself, the other outstretched to flag down his horse-drawn Uber. The cab clattered to a halt, and the man hauled himself inside and pulled the door fast. The gentleman set aside his hat, cane, and moustache upon the opposite seat before declaring, Take me to the brewery and don't spare the horses! The man was Nathaniel Kane, a true gentleman, educated the expensive way he knew a claret from a Beaujolais. For a recent inheritance, he had just become the new owner of the Kane's Brewery Village. And as I'm sure we are all aware, Kane's Brewery has since become quite the night spot, springing up a variety of food stalls, markets, and of course, the Peaky Blinders Bar, to pull in the post-racist crowd like flat-cap maggots to the corpse of popular culture. It looked like the perfect business opportunity had fallen into Nathaniel Kane's lap. It seemed too good to be true, because it was. When Kane's cab finally clattered onto the cobbles outside the brewery, he exited the carriage and stepped up to the driver's window to pay the man. But when their gaze met, he saw a single, tired, bloodshot eye, heavy set into the pale and weathered face. There was something haunted about him. You've already paid on the app, he said gravely. Kane nodded and dismissed him, pretending to read the Liverpool Echo on his phone as the driver awkwardly performed a three-point turn with two horses and drove away. Step this way, Mr. Kane, said a voice from the darkness. Who's that? 
barked Nathaniel, startled. My name is Mr. Lestat de Leoncourt. We have been expecting you. A black, primal dread began to build in Cain. There was something about this man, something unnatural, something inhuman. I'm an estate agent. I'm your estate agent. I'm from the Wyvern. Shall we go inside? Nathaniel studied the gentleman in his heavy black cape, sallow skin, and pronounced overbite. Yes, I don't see why not, he replied. First, they took in a pint of Coors at the brewery tap, before purchasing and then discarding a parsnip curry from the market, and then on to Ghetto Golf for a quick 18 holes and a trip back to Kane's teenage rap phase. It's funny you should be interested in the place, Mr. Kane, said the agent, deftly tapping the ball between a forest of upended dildos surrounding the hole. The last people to own these grounds were called Kane as well. Yes, my Aunt Jemima, replied Nathaniel, and he went on to tell that he had just arrived in Liverpool from Massachusetts because he was an American. For a recent inheritance, he had become the new owner of the brewery village. This was quite a surprise to Kane, as he only knew he had an Aunt Jemima when her coffin had arrived by FedEx at his estate, empty, with fingernails stuck in the lid. Truth be told, I was glad to leave America. The serving staff have become most tedious, many of them going missing or insane with fear, and frankly, the chef's aversion to garlic had become untenable. You don't say said the agent, idly fingering his vampire-familiar tattoo. Nathaniel expertly made his way through the windmill hole, down the castle hole, and finally to the yawning eldritch pit of oblivion hole. The pit was set a little lower into the red brick of the floor, although it itself was constructed of a material far older a nausea-reducing slab of jet-black granite and glistening metalwork, which pinged loudly as Kane's pink plastic golf ball bounced off the sides and into the blackness. Isn't this a little bit easy for a final hole? said Kane, above the mournful winds coming from deep within the pit. Most people are too drunk by now said the estate agent, suddenly right behind him, arms outstretched. I trust this won't affect my regular handicap, said Kane, bending over unexpectedly to tie his shoelace. On the contrary, Mr. Kane, you'll soon be feeling much, much better. <laughs> A curious man! He's fallen into that big black hole! His body will attract rats and other pests. I'd best call the exterminators. As pest control made their way into the brewery, Nathaniel Kane made his way across the road to the Baltic Social to wait. He pushed aside the beaded curtain made from rosary beads, past the nine crucifixes nailed above the door, and into the central bar. Pint of canes, please, said Nathaniel innocently. 
It was as though the whole pub had stepped on Lego. There was a serration of gasps, cries, <gasps> mutters, and someone said, fuck, mm. very quietly. Fuck. That name and the brewery attached to it are of ill repute hereabouts, sir, said the scouse barkeep coldly. Call it the figures in the windows at night. Call it the wolves and bats that start the grounds. Call it the edgy nighttime raves where blood comes out of the sprinklers. But mark my words, there's something not right about that vampire-infested brewery. Live. Well, that's too bad, said Kane. I've just inherited the building and I don't listen to people because I'm an American. Suddenly, the door burst open. The wind tore at the curtains and the room was filled with the scraping of chairs and the clatter of tables as the clientele drew knives, stakes and crucifixes. A crash of lightning. Silhouetted a hooded figure stood above the doorway's arch. The bar held its breath as the figure stood stock still, surveying them. Slowly, it raised its great hands to ease back its sinister cowl. But the creature beneath was not the foul vampiric harbinger of doom they had been expecting. It was Fat Chris. Have you been in the haunted brewery? Said Fat Chris, snapping off another punnet from his Ben and Jerry's bandolier. Haunted Brewery? Fuck out, drawled the entitled American. Fat Chris unsheathed his custom pipe of Pringles, pulling the cobwebs down from the rafters and disturbing the hanging pint glasses at the far end of the bar as he took a deep, crispy swig. The wind howled outside as Fat Chris took his beanbag by the fire and gestured for Nathaniel Kane to sit beside him. The bar held its collective breath as Fat Chris opened a six-pack of coconut boosts, and took it upon himself to explain the tale of the haunted brewery to Kane, who, after bitter negotiation, received half a coconut boost. Bacchus explained how in 1867, the Kane's Brewery Village on Stanhope Street had in fact once been a brewery, which had produced the finest ales in all the city of Liverpool, but no one drank them so it closed. Ten years later, in 1867, the abandoned building had been purchased by the Earl of Transylvania, who lived alone, along with his wolves and bats, thus leading to the present day. Suddenly again, the door burst open again and the exterminator from the brewery staggered into the snug. He calmly produced a tissue from his sleeve and dabbed at the blood pouring from the two jagged holes in his neck. Kane asked him if he had an infestation, and the exterminator whistled slowly, indicating that what he was about to say was going to be really expensive. Looks like you've got vampires! Vampires! How unexpected, said Mr. Kane. How much is this going to cost, then? The exterminator whistled again, or perhaps it was the air escaping the neck holes. He gestured weakly to the bar's clientele of diverse vampire hunters. They might do it on the cheap, he said, before collapsing from blood loss. Oh. 
Abraham Van Helsing, the social's barman, lifted the corpse with one arm and set a pint down in front of Kane with the other. After the quiz, Lar, he said. And so, the Baltic Social Vampire Hunters quiz team, who met every Thursday through the quiz and the steak night, entered the brewery, stealthily, via Birdie's Bar and Grill. Each hunter bringing with him a plethora of garlic, wooden steaks, and plot devices to aid them in their hunt below. The party was followed by Fat Chris, who brought the sandwiches, and stayed for the sandwiches. The vampire hunters rappled down the 18th hole of Ghetto Golf and into the darkness. At the bottom of the pit, they reached an immense grotto of rock and char, stretching out for miles into the untold blackness. Van Helsing dropped his lit cigar down the crevasse to judge its depth, but the bright glow of the Cuban did little more than reflect off distant outcrops of jagged obsidian. As they proceeded, Blade began to radio in their sightings. The caverns were truly immense, but more disturbingly, appeared to have been crafted, hewn from the midnight stone with purpose into a cathedral-like mockery of design. There seemed to be heat as well, and the frog brothers reported a sulfurous smell all about them. Then, Buffy Summers reported an ominous feeling of being watched. But this time, it wasn't Josh Whedon. And as Nathaniel listened to the radio, he thought he heard a strange, animalistic growl. What the hell? Top of the morning to you! Rape his eye! Rape his eye! Well, you see, my friends, in their greed and in their hubris, the vampires had delved too greedily and too deep and uncovered a vast network of leprechaun nests. At the end of the corridor, Nathaniel saw the shadows approach menacingly, the skittering of thousands of tiny feet echoing ever closer, and the scrape, scrape, scraping of shillelaghs upon the blood-red stone. Nathaniel turned. Fat Chris had gone, and so had the sandwiches. There was no turning back now. He could only go forward, only go down. And with resolve, Nathaniel Kane stepped through the accursed door, <coughs> cocked his shotgun, and went to work. Suddenly, he found a fully loaded, fully functioning minigun in the cave, in a bottle. Kane laughed maniacally, marvelling at how his shoulders remained undislocated despite the massive recoil of the traditionally vehicular mounted weapon. 
Miles above, Kane heard his elderly neighbour bang her walking stick hard against the shared wall. He let off a few passive-aggressive salvos into the ceiling, the hollow poke mounds shredding her budgerigard and scattering her collection of antique macaroons. He was hit in the shoulder. He was hit in the leg. He was hit in the chest. And then he touched the first aid kit and felt immediately fine. I feel immediately fine. Oh no, it's my great-grandpappy Nathan. And he's half a cyber demon. Part demon, part robot. All bad news. Oh look, a chainsaw. So anyway, they're all dead. The ceiling cracked, casting a shaft of light onto our triumphant hero. He squinted into the light, drifting down the staircase before him. As he emerged from the hole in the snug of the Baltic Social, he caught the eye of Sally, the busty barmaid. Looks like you've had quite the first day, Mr. Kane, said Sally voluptuously. Sally, beamed Kane, cracking a smile for the first time in this story. You don't know the half of it. Half? I thought you'd be wanting a full one, laughed Sally, quivering breastily. And, caked in blood and viscera as he was, Kane began to laugh too. Possibly from post-traumatic stress disorder. But it seems as good an image as any to end on. This particular epistle has been given the mysterious moniker, The Egg by the Thaddeus band Letter Goblins, and it's from Kimberly Wimbledon Geiger, who writes, What up, T-Dog? We met at FADCON 98. You wouldn't sign my chest. You're actually pretty uptight about it. <sighs> yes, all right, Kimberly, I remember. I'm a bit worried about the big egg in the pantry. It's massive, like it was laid by a big ostrich that was abusing steroids. The husband Malcolm is fuck all use. He's been to the pantry to look once, and ever since he's been lying on the floor with a novelty rubber spider mask stuck to his face. I have to step over him to get the biscuits. Kimberly, I will tell you what I told you at FADCON 98. I don't sign body parts, prosthetic or otherwise. And regarding your situation, don't call me T-Dog ever. We move on. <clears throat> uh, our next letter uh, is from a nice lady named Yvette who writes, Dear Thaddeus, my husband and myself live in the countryside, in a large Jacobean manor. Some of the windows are up to 350 years old, but some of them are not, and are newer. We are currently being haunted by a poltergeist. My self-employed husband's hand cream keeps moving by itself. I found it in the computer room, I found it in the living room, and most recently I found it in his shed. I want to know, is the hand cream itself haunted, or should we move house entirely? 
Thank you, Vivette. Um, well, my advice depends on whether or not you want to acknowledge the problem. Um, poltergeists are really bad. You should probably move. Gallic thunder rolled across the distant hilltops as the rain began to fall. Raindrops so big and so French that they almost rode liquid bikes and had droplets of watery onions round their necks. Zitello. This story is set in France. On quite a sunny day, actually. What little of the visible sun that day shone down betwixt the clouds and onto the setting of our tale. An old and long-abandoned French chateau. It was a large chateau, measuring 300 baguettes in height, and more than 140,000 baguettes across. And yes, that's metric baguettes. It had once been the residence of the Comte de Fromage, and had once employed a staff of hundreds of servants. But a strange incident in 1778 had left the building empty, deserted, and with no people in. Local legend told that the Comte had agreed to pay his window cleaner half a franc for each and every window he cleaned in the chateau. Apparently, there was some kind of discrepancy over what they each regarded as a window, with Claude, the window cleaner, estimating that there were over 70 windows on each side of the palatial estate, whilst the Comte was adamant that there were only four in total. The unpaid cleaning fee enraged Claude's wife, a local seamstress and witch, and she placed a powerful spell on the chateau on all who lived there, and cursed the Comte de Fromage to transform into a fucking horrible beastie until his lesson was learned. I would go into more detail about the curse, but there is none. Instead, the legend dedicates swathes of its stanzas to contract law and the minutiae of window cleaning, and French scholars now believe the tale was entirely fabricated by union workers, trying to depict window cleaning as a skilled job, and not something that you could do yourself if A. you had a ladder, and B. could be asked. Whatever the story, the Chateau de Fromage has remained empty to this very day, glibly described by estate agents as a fixer-upper. The windows in particular are thick with grime and dirt, which just goes to show that cursing is a highly impractical way to resolve small business disputes. Picture yourself now, squinting through those grime-encrusted windows as the first signs of movement at the Chateau de Fromage in over 200 years. Could it be a spectral carriage driven by twin mares of fate and death, or a white Nissan Duke with Allerton number plating? It was, unfortunately, the latter crunching across the post-Brexit gravel driveway to the front of the building, and disgorging one Miss Moana Cromarty Linseed, otherwise known as at Design by Moana Nana on Instagram. Her Bakelite sunglasses scanned the rich gargoyle facade of the Chateau de Fromage. Behind her shades, her eyes narrowed at the sight of the masonry. Well, I can fucking go for a start, she murmured. Well, that's original 16th century stonework, said her boyfriend, Doctor of Architecture at John Walls University, Ken Jones, known on his unfinished LinkedIn profile as Ken Jones, 83. That's going, Ken, snapped Nwana. 
This is a strike from all the fairy lights that have bought. Might be listed, you know. I'm not sure the French will like you glittering up their architectural heritage, said Ken. What's ours now, Ken? Isn't it? This was to the painfully young estate agent who had come to drop off the keys. A service that had cost Moana and Ken about £10,000. Well, I don't think so, he said, shifting awkwardly somewhere within his boxy grey suit. Uh, just as long as you stay out of the West Wing, it's cursed or something. Uh, can you review give me a lift back to Crosby, please? The three stood in silence until the young estate agent could stand the tension no longer and set off alone back down the three and a quarter mile driveway and out into the French countryside. Seven weeks later, his parents would be informed via the British Embassy that their son had met his demise trying to cross the Med in a pedalo to get back to the UK. Their chief emotion had been relief. At least their son had died an estate agent rather than lived as one. Entering the chateau, the couple cast their eyes around their surroundings. Ken with the keen, enthusiastic eye of an academic, and Moana through her peripheral vision as she live-streamed it to her followers. What's up guys? We're here! Check out this big old house! Big high ceilings, wood panelling, ceramic floor tiling! It's all going! We can't stand this old site, can we babe? There was a tentative, um, from off camera phone. Yeah, we're, we're gonna plaster it all up, yeah, yeah, e e e even the floor's silly. I'm we going to paint it pastel pink and mocha. Chevron patterned, obviously. An upsettingly large amount of heart and smiley emojis erupted from her followers as she panned past her visibly somber boyfriend to an equally distressed pendulum clock and golden candelabra sitting on a side table. Yeah, I'll we'll swap the furniture out, obviously. Something from Ikea, or, or an old shipping crate. But I think we might put a modern twist on these, with a bit of pink spray paint and glitter. What can I say? I, I love pink. Pink and glitter? Yay! So much work to do. But first... Moana went to the nearest Baroque oil painting, and flailing madly behind her, whilst keeping her face in frame, dislodged it from the wall. Let's make this house a home, she beamed, and after several attempts, hung a pastel pink lump of driftwood in its stead. The driftwood said, Live. Laugh. Love. Let's check out the scullery! I'm thinking Granite Kitchen Island! She let out a giggly snort, <laughs> and cantered off into the east wing, leaving Ken all alone to contemplate suicide. What do you? She sounds like hard work, said a voice from behind him. You don't know the half of it, mate. Hang on. Who said that? Ken turned to look around the grand hall. Not one word, Lumiere. Not one word. Oh, Cogsworth. Have a heart. Shh. Ken looked down at the clock and the candlestick with a depressed inevitability. They looked back. Sheepishly. You too, isn't it? He said. I saw it in that old animated kids film from the 90s. You know the one. Titan AE. Ken! 
again, shouted Moana from down the corridor. Do you want to brew while you start the plastering? You want me to start already? We already just got here. No time like the present, babe. Ken sighed and looked at the household objects. Have you lads got anything strong to drink? Later that night, the couple was lying together in bed, Moana flicking through her social media analytics, whilst Ken tried not to look pissed, whilst also trying to stop the room from spinning. It's been a really positive first day, Ken, cooed Moana, scrolling through her feed. That's good then, said Ken, really concentrating on the light fitting. Yeah, it's great, it's great. Except I spent all the budget, said Moana levelly. The budget? gasped Ken, sobering up. On what? Things we need, Ken! snapped Moana, who proceeded to list a crushing manifest of what decor was en route to the chateau. There were countless smaller items, from 34,000 cushions, 63 paper clips on little bits of wire to put photos of Moana's friends on, and a repurposed ship's bell that said, Ring for Prosecco. The decor I can understand, Mo, said Ken warily. But why have you spent three grand on vapes? Neither of us vape. We'll shop downstairs. But we've just moved from a flat above a vape shop to a French chateau. Are you planning on doing our French chateau like a flat above a vape shop? Who said you wanted it to be home? Not the same home. It'll be bigger. Fine, said Ken, with a profoundly weary sigh. Incidentally, the furniture appears to be made up of the consciousness of the chateau's former serving staff. It sounds like a curse, yeah, finished Moana. The banister told me. I didn't notice at first. I was too distracted looking for the dry rot I've been warned about. Who warned you about that? Armand, the big timber beam in the cellar, finished Moana. Now you must get some sleep. You've got a long day tomorrow replacing the coat of arms on the front of the house with my city vapes neon. I might have an antacid, groaned Ken, meaning a lot of brandy. The next day, Moana was up early to glitter blast the Grand Hall. So Ken was free to creep up to the top of the house with Cogsworth, Lumiere, John Baptiste, a 24-litre bottle of scotch, and Jacques, an authentic Bourbon era PlayStation 5. Downstairs in the Grand Hall, Moana was meeting the gaze of ten generations of French aristocracy. From the rich oil stared the Comte de Fromages, who could trace their lineage back to Charles Martel and Charlemagne. Their canvases survived war, famine, and revolution. Now, they exploded under the onslaught of Moana's pastel pink glitter spray, made from a repurposed CO2 fire extinguisher. Outside, someone pressed the novelty doorbell Moana had installed, and the oak panels that had once borne witness to Voltaire's earliest works now thrumbed to the tinny sound of Cardi B. Ding dong! Ken! That'll be the new spray fridge freezer! Could you give us a hand down here? She shouted upwards. Up in the attic, Ken turned the television up even higher 
It wasn't that he didn't like Moana's decor ideas, it was that he hated them and didn't want to do them. Why am I a whiskey bottle exactly? said Jean-Baptiste, sobering up now that his contents have been emptied. Don't know why you're asking me. I'm just an academic architect, said Ken, between burps. <laughs> this curse doesn't make a lick of fucking sense to me. Ken's offhand groped for the remaining twiglets at the bottom of the bowl, which elicited nothing but a breathy, needy sigh from the bowl. Uh... I'm out of crisps! Hey, a Alexa, how far is it to the nearest Sainsbury's? Where's the Sainsbury's? said Lumiere, not even looking up from the PlayStation. Uh, it's like a big shop. What's the shop? Uh, you buy stuff in them. Come on, do you add shops? Well, right, well, yeah, we are tobacconists, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers. Yeah, what well, Stainsbury's is all of them. So I could buy a box of cigars and a, a joint of arm at the same time? said Lumiere. Uh, it'd have to be one of the big ones, replied Ken thoughtfully. Do you know where there is one? Lumiere shrugged. I've been an anthropomorphic candelabra unable to leave the house since 1778. Oh, shit, yeah, said Ken. It shifted to look at the Alexa, which had been silent for some time. He squinted at the melt marks on either side of her midriff and the telltale trail of wax dripping out of her plug socket. She has been in a off since last night's little accident, said Lumiere, smirking to himself. Uh, well, it wasn't mine anyway, said Ken. His face creased in thought as he took the tinfoil bundle from his Mighty Max bum bag and crumbled some more soap bar cannabis into Chip, who was shaking nervously in his saucer. Right, just try and stay airtight, mate, alright? You know, Henri is an ocapite, right? Said Chip anxiously. Yeah, but I don't know how to use them. Now hold still, said Ken, holding a lighter to Chip's chip. <laughs> Meanwhile, Moana was taking a sledgehammer to the antique walled panel, extending the bathroom into the ballroom for reasons that were hers alone. She took another hefty swing, narrowly missing Madame Amoir, and sending splinters flying across the room. What are you swinging that thing? shouted the wardrobe. I'm not a thing, said the sledgehammer, who was weeping. Mrs. Potch was watching from the sidelines, her porcelain complexion noticeably perturbed. She cast an eye up at what had been her favourite wall tapestry which had once depicted the coronation of Louis XVI from 1754. It had now been plastered over, and bore the phrase, Oh, you're a princess, but I'm the drama queen, bitch! Flanked by heels and champagne flutes. What does that even mean? She muttered to herself. It means that lazy twat about start helping me with the renovations, growled Moana. Her live followers sent a barrage of emojis in agreement, and several spotty men in fedoras repeated their demands to take her top off. This isn't renovation, it's simply distraction, growled Mrs. Potts. 
when the master returns from the west wing and sees what you have done to his beautiful home, well, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. Pah! This is my house now, and I'll do what I'd like with it, so you can put a cork in your spout, you friggin' teapot. With what money, dearie? said Mrs. Pot, ceramically. You've got about as much equity as you have taste in decor. Madame Amoise's drawers rattled as she laughed along with Mrs. Potts, and Moana stared at her plaster-plastered shoes forlornly. She checked her live stream again, and in amongst the spotty men begging her for the start and OnlyFans was a message that caught her eye and gave her a wicked smirk of an idea. How much for the talking teapot, it said. A week later, Ken was stumbling down the corridor, past the unhung city vape sign, piles of pound shop terracotta frogs and rolled up Prosecco clock posters, and into the kitchen. Uh, have you seen John Luke? Ken asked Moana. Is a bottle opener. He's not here, was Moana's curt response. We've got a Creighton. We can't find anyone. Not a soul in sight. What about me, Ken? There was a pause. Do you have a bottle opener? Jesus, Ken! Ever since we got here, all you've done is drink and get high and talk shit to assorted household objects. You haven't done a single thing to help me out with the renovations. There isn't any more money for renovations, shouted Ken, getting angry. I've got the money! I just need my architect boyfriend to get off his ass once in a while! How... How have you got us the money? You haven't left the house since we got here. I've sold a few things. It was then that Ken realised what was different about the kitchen. It was empty. The once bustling cupboards were deserted. The shelves uninhabited. The tabletops abandoned. Where is everybody? We're the only people here, Ken, said Moana matter-of-factly. Everything else just came with the house. You haven't. I have! There's quite the market for anthropomorphic tea sets on eBay, although I have to chuck out that split one you used as a bong. You binned, Chip! He was broken, Ken! Do you know how much pot was stuck in that crack? It's unhygienic! Cogsworth? Frogged to the hairdressers. Madame Amoir? Sprayed silver and put on Etsy. And as for that pervert candlestick, Lumiere? I sold him to a sex club in Soho. Lumiere! Ken wailed, tears fountain from his eyes as he fell to his knees. Moana crossed the gap between them, placing a gentle hand on his shoulder. It's for the best, Ken. Now we can afford the faux marble floor, with glittery silver bits in. For the bathroom, sobbed Ken, his nose bubbling snot in despair. No, the bedroom, silly. It'll match the silver chaise lounge. The sobbing stopped, making way for a heavy silence to enter the room and put its feet up with a tea and a slice of Battenberg. 
which wasn't the silence's favourite, but it was a guest after all. That sounds fucking dreadful, said Ken, clenching his fists as he rose to his feet defiantly. You dragged me out into the middle of fucking France to turn a 16th century chateau into a shitting salon, and you sold my only friends here to do it. I thought I was her only friend, said Moana, genuinely hurt. Well, if all you want is talking furniture, friends, Ken, you can cunting well become one of them. Suddenly, Moana snapped into a Krav Maga tiger stance and roundhouse kicked Ken square in the bollocks, sending him sprawling backwards into the open Smeg fridge freezer. She threw herself shoulder first into the door, slamming it shut, and turned the key in the lock. Ken was trapped. You better fucking die in there, Ken, screeched Moana as she shoved the smeg back into the delivery crate. And when you do, you're going to possess that fridge freezer, otherwise there'll be no sex for a month. You got that? I don't think that's how curses work, came Ken's muffled response. Who died and made you king of curses? spat Moana. She finished nailing the lid in place and slapped a delivery address on the side of the crate. My followers were so disappointed when I sold the last bit of whinging white goods. Imagine how happy they'll be when I tell them I found one more. Suddenly, a loud animalistic roar of dismay reverberated through the chateau. What in shitting bollocks name have you done to my fucking house? Roared the master of the house. Inside the fridge, Ken managed to put his fingers in his ears to muffle the sounds of the beast's limb-by-limb critique of Moana's interior design decisions. When the screams finally stopped, he wrapped his knuckles on the inside of the fridge as politely as possible. Uh, excuse me? Could you let me out, please? I shall not, boomed the beast. You should have been honest with your partner about your misgivings, rather than avoid her all day and mess up my FIFA rankings. Safe travels, prick! Ken sighed and pulled his phone out of his pocket and dialed the emergency number. He listened for the tone, but there was nothing. He looked down at his phone again. Ken could see very little in the dim light of the fridge, but he could just about make out the faint sheen of candle wax oozing out of the headphone jack like a cream pie. You randy French bastard! As Ken had expected, Moana knew as much about curses as she knew about interior design, and his spirit failed to magically inhabit the coffin-sized appliance, although the slime from his decomposing cadaver did short out the motor when the Smith family excitedly turned on their new talking smeg three weeks later. Their disappointment in the ice cube maker not working was quickly rendered moot by their horror of finding a dead architect in their fridge. And as for Lumiere, well, he spent the rest of his days dripping wax onto new divorcees <laughs> and humming the Marseillais inside them to aid their climax. 
So, in a way, the story has a happy ending. Multiple ones if she was lucky. 